Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Galaxy Geek, the podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Krista Williams, or pronouns are she, her, and I'm here with my equally amazing, fun, talented co-host, Lizzie. Hi, I'm Lizzie. My pronouns are she or he. Yay for pronouns. Uh, <laughs> not... Minus nouns? Is that the opposite? Oh my god, did you see that Roseanne Barr did some kind of comeback performance or an attempt at one? Oh, where, where it's the same pronoun joke? Ugh, I don't <laughs> get it. How, first of all, how is it not plagiarism? Like, I see, it, it, it feels like like, put the transphobia aside, because that is honestly not the thing that makes me angry about it. It's because it's such a stupid, like, how is this not, like, walking into a comic show and someone doing a fucking airline food joke? I mean, it is, but right? How are you sitting there being like, yes, comedy golds, the same fucking joke. That literal Republican politicians are saying. Like, it's just so aggressively, like, not even that it's not funny or that it's transphobic, it's just so overdone. Everyone has done this exact fucking joke. It was dead in 2012. Like, it's just, it's not, what, you're not doing anything clever. If you're going to be transphobic in your comedy routine, I'm begging you to come up with a new bit. Well, coming up with a new bit would require that these people are intelligent, and they're not. <laughs> I'm just so sick of it. I'm so, and I'm so sick of right-wingers, like, retweeting every single time, like, quote-tweeting every single time they do it, like, oh, slam dunk. No, it's not. Why, why do you have, like, no, in, no creativity at all? Because they're conservative. Because it's the antithesis of creation. It's so... Uh, it just makes me... Like, I'm embarrassed for them. You know what's really embarrassing? <laughs> it's like an... One, sorry, I have one other... I have one other simile, and then we can go on. Keep it's going. When your, your 43-year-old aunt on Facebook posts a meme... From 2014. With the minions in it. Or some shit. I mean, it's just such a, it's a, it's a neat, it's such an old, like you're using the, the fucking, like, like posting an, a, a, one of those Sean Bean memes or something. Oh, yeah. It's like this shit, like, what are you doing? <laughs> what do you mean? What is, what is this? This has not been funny. <laughs> I'm still really bitter about one of my favorite uh, filmmaker who made some of my favorite comedy films of all time an airplane top secret naked gun ended up doing a fucking conservative com quote unquote comedy movie called an American Carol and it's god awful it's so depressing <sighs> it's you know what's interesting? So I watched um, about two weeks ago. I watched um, Dogma. 
Yes, Dogma's a great movie. First time in a minute, which is a great mm-hmm. movie, very funny. Um, I would say go out and watch it if you haven't seen it, but you actually cannot watch Dogma anywhere right now unless you own it on DVD or know someone who does. Um, it's not presently owned by anyone after the dissolving of Miramax. No one bought it, so it's not available for streaming or to purchase on DVD anywhere. Tragic. But you know what's wild? Like, the thing is, and I've been, I've watched a fair bit of Kevin Smith in the last few months just because my girlfriend and I, um, totally, totally all entirely sober on absolutely no other subs, no substances except for life. Mm-hmm. Um, sit, <laughs> we'll sit down and watch, uh, some Kevin Smith movies because they're good for that. <laughs> they're, they're good for, for when you're, when you're experiencing life. Um, and and no no other types of additional substances to enjoy. Ah, uh, yep. I know it's just like high on life. Just. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but watching Dogma, watching Kevin Smith, it's like so interesting to see. Yes, there are plenty of jokes in Kevin Smith's movies that haven't aged like amazing. Like you get you get the stray gay joke here and there. Yeah, you get this. I just this. think about the um, the racial. I guess it's not really a slur, but racial. Like, I guess it's a slur in uh, Clerks too. I'm thinking about. Uh, I don't remember. I've said. I'm not going to say it. I know you're not going to say it. Don't try and catch me on any bullshit. I'm willing to remember which which one that is. But yeah, no, just like just the occasional like, oh yeah, you were a straight white guy in the '90s. Like the entirety of Chasing Amy is a little bit is like questionable. Chasing Amy is a weird movie, and I think that's a good that's a good one to bring up because I think I think there's some really good points to it, but I also like it's also deeply dated. It is, but that's like, it, I feel like Chasing Amy is a, is a great example that encompasses the point I'm about to make. Um, is that, cause Chasing Amy is also really, really great in a lot of ways. And it's, yeah, really it's both. Pathetic and kind and introspective movie, I think. About I agree with you. A straight person's perspective on queer people and especially queer women in the 90s. So like, I, the interesting thing about Kevin Smith's movies is that like, it's such a, despite those occasionally things that haven't aged fantastic, it's always coming from a perspective of self-improvement. Yeah. Curiosity. Like, Kevin Smith grows as a person and a filmmaker in ways that I think, and mainly as a comedian, in ways that I think people don't give him credit for, because Kevin Smith likes to make what he likes to make, and, and there are people who will say that he never grew as a filmmaker, and I don't think that's fair. Um, I think that he grew, uh, mostly as a writer, I think he grew a lot. Um, and it's just, it's just so interesting to experience, like, something like Dogma, which is such an aggressively, like, curious, introspective, thoughtful film. Yeah. Such incredibly, like, progressive politics that is centered entirely around, um, both the imperative of a religious pilgrimage, Mm-hmm. That is also like it's so unassailably pro pro choice and aggressively questioning the the dogma of the specifically the Catholic Church and like de- demanding that you rethink the things that you're being taught 
by this <clears throat> organization without ever actually without insisting that you have to completely abandon it. Mm-hmm. Which is an angle I think people miss sometimes when they're angry at dogs, people who don't like the movie, who are maybe angry at it or maybe haven't seen it, who don't who miss the point where it's like, no, actually, this is a movie about a woman rediscovering her <laughs> her faith, her Catholic faith through this experience. Mm-hmm. It's just such, it's such a politically interesting movie, and it's so it's so interesting to watch a comedian who has messed up and did did make some comments and some jokes that just, like, aren't super kosher now here in 2022. And it's like no one's out here trying to cancel Kevin Smith because Kevin Smith isn't trying to pretend that... He'd be the first one to cancel himself. Yeah, like, Kevin, yeah. if you sit down and you talk to Kevin Smith and you're like, how do you feel about this, the, like, the racial slur in Clerks 2, how do you think, what do you, would you put this in? He'd be like, no. If I'm making that movie now, I'm not going to do that because I know better now that these things are, aren't cool. Like, he leave, like you watch the new Jay and Silent Bob movie. Uh, yeah, I did see that one. The, the, that one, I had a lot of fun with that one. It's really fun. It's a good time. And you can see, like, you watch the first Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which I love. I think that's my favorite Kevin Smith movie, to be honest, other than maybe Zach and Miri make a porno. I, I have very interesting choices. I think I like the Clerks films, but. <laughs> the ones that make me the happiest. Um, but, like, you watch uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, and one of its biggest, like, one of the things that makes it a little bit cringier at times is there's, like, one too many no-homo jokes about okay. That it's like, eh, you could have you could have cut back on that. And you watch the reboot, and it's like, that's basically not even there. I always felt like there's, like, there's an end, there's a, there's a queerness inherent in those two characters um, yeah. that I I don't think Kevin's intentionally trying to – I get what you're saying of the no homo sort of thing. I don't think his his perspective was ever one of judgment, but it definitely was, was no. one of a straight white man from that era. I don't think it was either, but it was also just like a overly defensive nature that is absent – in the in the new in the newer movie, and I think that that speaks to his growth as a as a person of being like, yeah, I don't I don't need to be preemptively as defensive. Yeah, I I right. agree with you. Um, I even used in the new film, um, Jay's bigotry sort of to make fun of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I remember. It's a, it's a character. It's a little bit more emphasized as a character flaw. <laughs> Right, that's the point. I mean, he's you're not Jay isn't supposed to be someone you uh you necessarily like <laughs> or look to for your uh, moral standing. You know what's funny? I was watching when we were watching Dogma, you know the scene in the strip club just where they, when they're just like standing there and they're and some they're some Hayek is like going back and forth between between Bob, Silent Bob and the other guy like as they're handing her money. Yeah, it's been a while. I, I think I remember what you're talking about. It's just, I remember saying, like, I don't know what it is about it, but it's because I, like, I said to my girlfriend, I was like, something about this scene, like, there's nothing that feels leering or voyeuristic from Silent Bob in this scene. And I was trying to figure out what it was, and I was like, this isn't gross to me, the fact that he's standing here staring at a strip. I don't think there's anything wrong with going to a strip club in general, to be clear, but, like, 
there was something about the scene. I just kept trying to figure out, like, what is it? I'm like, no, because he's just looking at the stripper, but he's looking at her like he is looking respectfully. Mm-hmm. He's just being so nice. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love Silent Bob as a character so much. I can't explain it properly. I mean, he's a smart one of the two of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not really a high bar, but that's that's the joke, right? Yeah. Also, Wes Craven has a cameo. Yes, he does. Bob Strike Back. Uh, and they have a cameo in Scream 3. <laughs> <laughs> Which, it, may, it brings me joy. I like I like that Wes Craven just showed, like, because the movie's full, that movie's full of really big pop culture icons. It's got Carrie Fisher. It's got George Carlin. It's got... There's, like, left and right. There's big cameos like that. Um, and so Wes Craven being included in that general pantheon of, like, people who are culturally important and, oh, hey, look, look at that person who's here. It's definitely his most, outside of maybe, obviously, the next Jane Silent Bob, it might be one of his, it's so, like, you know, it's break the fourth wall Deadpool level, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I do appreciate the breaking the fourth wall stuff. But I also, I think, I guess I, I feel like I circled around a lot. My point is that Kevin Smith, I think, is a very introspective filmmaker who and comedian who has a lot of interest in growing as a person and doesn't come out here to, like, there's a reason people don't really make a big deal about the problematic elements in his films from his past. And it's because he already understands them. He'd probably be the first one to point it out before anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's Kevin. I, like, uh, <laughs> I did meet him before. Uh, he's incredibly sweet. <laughs> I love Kevin Smith also, as a, as he exists now as an entity. I, I One of the things I respect the most about Kevin Smith is that he has utilized his career and his success and his connections to help other filmmakers. Mm-hmm. He works very hard. He has his own production studio that he, like, uses, and he pushes, like, he works very hard to help other, film, like, other independent filmmakers get their work made. Well, because that was him, right? Yeah. I mean, he was always a scrappy little underdog making these small films. He's just, he's just an all-around good dude. It's nice to have a straight white guy who's, and up until this point... <laughs> I don't want to put a label on that, but now I'm thinking about it. I think there's a quote of him saying that he might be a little queer. (gasps) I will find this. I think he he had said that he's some flavor of it, but he never he never talks about it. Mm -hmm. You know. Um. And he didn't put like a, a name or anything to it. But I'm pretty certain I saw a quote of him saying that. I will find it. I will hunt it down. <laughs> I was just trying to Can't correct myself, because if he's a little queer, I don't think it's necessarily, if that's the case, and, you know, naming him straight. I don't know if that's really the fair <laughs> approach to that. I respect that. I respect and I appreciate you, you bringing that up to me. I just, I like Kevin Smith, and I think Kevin Smith is evidence that um, you don't have, that comedians don't need to be angry and defensive when their comedy when every aspect of their comedy doesn't age perfectly. 
Uh, true. It's really, um, really, it was really why I brought it up in the first place. <laughs> that, like, I uh, Kevin it. Smith and Weird Al. And Weird Al. Weird Al will be the first one also to say that, yeah, there's stuff that, that doesn't work. Because <laughs> they're, they're good people. <laughs> good people admit when they're wrong. So, like, and that is the nature of comedy. True. Comedy, comedy is about learning and growing. Yeah. Comedy is never, is, is, is very central to its time and place in which it exists. And very rarely will it age perfectly. And if you're gonna be a professional comedian, you just gotta accept that and be capable of growing with the times if you wanna keep being loved and successful. Facts. You know? The best comedians know how to change with the time. Yeah. Um, I don't, I need to watch more of his actual stand-up, but are you familiar with the work of, uh, uh, Tim Heidecker? 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 Yeah. Huh? Yes, I am. Okay. I'm just saying that's a good comedian who uses the, the medium as, like, a storytelling device to make fun of certain type of comedians. Mm-hmm. Kind of brilliantly. More brilliantly than I've seen other performers. <laughs> um... That's the kind of type of comedy I like. Or, of course, Bo, Bo Burnham. I mean, who... just going to say that also Bo Burnham, whose, like, whole career at this juncture is largely him looking back on his old material and being like, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hate this. He's a cool dude. Uh, yeah, Bo Burnham... Bo Burnham works pretty hard to, to, to not be whoever he was ten years ago, and that's and I feel like he's gonna keep doing that, and I hope he does because that's how you're gonna keep being funny. <laughs> I want another comedy special now. <laughs> I don't know if we'll see one for a few years though. No, and I hope Inside was also more than a comedy special. Like Inside True. was a lot. Mm-hmm. And whatever he may, I can't. I struggle to imagine that whatever he makes next is going to have the same like depths of depression. <laughs> <laughs> you mean one of one of the deepest c- comedy experiences ever? <laughs> I think. Um, oh, what was what? What was that pattern? Not. I was gonna say it. May, it was. It was one of my favorite and most complex comedy special I'd seen since. That Patton Oswalt special. Was that after his wife passed away? The one after his wife passed. Um, God, what was it? And, and started with an A. I hadn't seen that one. <gasps> Hang on. Comedy specials. I'm so mad because this is uh, very important to me. <laughs> no, that's fair. Now that we talked about Bo, I've got the uh, the sound that's used all over TikTok is like, you're a total anti-sexist, a patriarchy fighter, but your whole world collapses the moment there's a spider. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is the real you. <laughs> Amazing how that went on to uh, be huge on TikTok, by the way. I guess kind of like Jeffrey Bezos was. Annihilation. Annihilation. It was called Annihilation. It was on Netflix. It's amazing because it's an entire, it's a, the comedy, like it's a great comedy special and it is a comedy special about him and his daughter grieving the death of his wife. Huh. And it's so good. Okay. I'll have it, to watch it. Crying and laughing at the same time. It's, it's amazing. That's awesome. And to me, it was like, wow, you really can make a great comedy special out of anything without being a fuckhead. Uh, because it that is, is true. It is not a cynical comedy special in the least. It is so, it is sincere and it is heartwarming and it is heartbreaking and it's tragic. And it's also, it, it was also shortly after he had remarried and about the relationship between his, his daughter and his daughter and his new wife. Mm-hmm. And how they all came and uh, it's I can't I, you I think you love it Crystal I definitely think you should watch that I will definitely do that I will put that on my list I will I will listen to that special uh, and probably get emotional <laughs> um have you seen Clerks three yet Sorry not the kind of staying on the I haven't, I haven't seen that one yet No I need to. I really want to see it because apparently I heard it's pretty. Uh, it's it's a pretty moving little movie, you know. Yeah. No, that's what I've heard. I've heard that it's. I've heard very good things. It's introspective. Yeah. Like you said. And also, kind of like talking about his own life. Sounds like. Probably. So. Probably because Clerks, in a lot of ways, the first Clerks was. His life. His life. Like, not to the way that The Fablemans was Spielberg's life, but, like, Clerks... I did see Fablemans, by the way. Very good. You Sorry, what? I did see Fablemans. Okay. It was very good. Isn't it? It's so good. Yeah. Uh, but continue your thought. I didn't want to interrupt you. I'm just like, oh, I remember I saw Fablemans. Clerks is very clearly, like, pretty as a, a pretty self-insert story for him. Yeah, he he wrote what he knew. Yeah. So yes, we recommend the movies of Kevin Smith, even though there's problematic elements in them. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't seen Dogma, I think Dogma is probably his most ideologically complex movie. It's a really interesting film. (laughs) It's a really interesting movie. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Also, fun fact, um, in Thor Ragnarok, Mm-hmm. There's that scene where Loki has put on a play, is made like the people of Asgard put on a play of him. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and the person playing Loki in the play is Matt Damon, who in Dogma played Loki. Yes. So it's just a very funny referential uh, cameo that I appreciate greatly. That's. Oh, is that the second weird tie to the MCU to Kevin Smith? Because Stan Lee cameo was him reading the Mallrats script in Cap- Captain Marvel? <laughs> I 
guess. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do remember that, and I remember everyone tweeting, wondering if Kevin Smith survived the snap or not. <laughs> well, eventually. <laughs> As- <laughs> everyone just had to wait five years of being kind of half dead. Yeah. Kind of like a <laughs> Princess Bride, you know, not 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 completely dead. Only half dead. Yeah. I should watch the Princess Bride. Have you not seen it? No, 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 no I have. It's one of your movies. Oh. I, just, I just mean I, just, I have <laughs> in a in a hot minute. Okay, good. I was just be like, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> have you ever read the book? No, I've only seen the movie. Okay, so I read the princess, the book, I read the Princess Bride book um, mm-hmm. in middle school of my own volition. We were supposed to do a summer reading, but we yeah. got to pick the book we did for our summer reading. And at That's the time, cool. I was super obsessed with the movie version of Princess Bride. So I was like, oh, I'm going to read the book. The book is strange. So the Frank, you know how in the movie you have, we've got this super simple framing device about the grandfather reading the book. Yeah. His sick grandson. Yes. Like it's not that complicated. You be pan back and forth to it. It's a great, it's a great, by the way, it's a great way of doing it for the film. Yeah, it's a great framing device, especially for something like The Princess Bride. Yeah. Um, it's perfect, like, it's perfect, it's part of what makes the movie so, a perfect version of itself. Um, in the book, so that framing device is super, super shrinks down because the, in the book, we start, we, there, especially the version I read, which was a special edition with a prologue from the actual author, and I didn't realize that, but like, we get the story of the author's actual, like, reasoning for writing this story, right? And then the framing device for the book is an extended um, first-person POV fake autobiography about the author, about a, a fictional version of the author and his, like, entire fucking life, of which... Huh. One of the instances that brought him to this process of trying to write a different new book was his father, not his grandfather, was his father reading him The Princess Bride when he was a, when he was a sick child. And it's so long, and it gets into so many fucking unnecessary details about the <laughs> fictional version of the author's life. Huh. So it was really unnecessary? It was super unnecessary. It takes up, like... So the Princess Bride, like, the actual story of the Princess Bride, mm-hmm. is, like, the middle of the book. Oh, okay. And then we get... After we get to the end of the story of the Princess Bride, we get another, like, several chapters. Okay. Of homeboys. <laughs> real, actual... Fictional. It's not real because it's a fake author, but the author is right. It's so. It's very. Like, I mean, it's Lemony Snicket. Yeah, but yeah. Lemony, but you know what? Lemony Snicket hat was like a, a fugitive on the run. So yeah. when we get 
that shit in a series of unfortunate events, it was like interesting. Oh, true. That that is true because it it adds to the to the overall um, narrative and the story structure of it. Like it ties yeah. in nicely, you know. And, it, and it's not overwhelming. Like the stuff with when what what few things we do get with what's going on with Lemony Snicket as a character within the outside of the narrative is like brief. In those books, I'm sorry. I yeah. love a series of unfortunate events. I haven't finished the the series adaptation on Netflix. What'd you think of it? I really liked it. Like I said, I haven't finished it. I've seen the first three seasons, um, and I liked what I saw. Um, my understanding after the fact was that they changed a lot, and so I wasn't sure if I wanted to finish watching it. I'll get around to it one of these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love those books. Almost, and there was a period of my life where I loved those books almost as much as I loved Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> do we find the do we do we find the segue portion of this conversation? Uh, I guess. <laughs> I must want to avoid that. On purpose. <laughs> so. So what you're saying is you recommend reading, or sorry, watching The Princess Bride as opposed to reading the novel? I mean, it's not bad. I want to stress this enough, and I imagine that I'd probably like this as a creative endeavor much more as an adult. I don't think I should. I think it was far too boring for me at age, like, 12. Mm-hmm. I was also, I wasn't good at reading. I was not good at reading as a kid, mm. um, which is a big reason why, like, sorry to bring it to this again, is a big reason why Harry Potter was very, very important and formative to me. It was the first thing that was very easy for me to read um, that I got super invested in. <laughs> and it made I, it, like, <laughs> it was really, like, I got really, really invested and I read, like my, it vastly improved my reading level. I read all seven books in the space of like five months. And so to make like a context for that, when I first read the first Harry Potter book at the beginning of this, it took me three weeks to finish the first one. And then by the time mm-hmm. I got to the seventh book, it took me two weeks to finish that. So like yeah. it, it, it did a lot for me personally in a very quick short space of time which is why it was really really like it was really important to me and it's why it's really hard <laughs> for me to deal with how shitty a person jk rowling is very upsetting um but so the princess bride i think was too dense for me to attempt to read after that even still, like, I still was not, I was not the strongest reader in the world, I, and I think I was very bored and frustrated by how long it was taking to get to the part that I cared about. Mm-hmm. So I don't not recommend reading it. I imagine I would like it a lot more now as a grown-up. I'd recommend not buying it for your 12-year-old daughter. I guess. So, adults read it. Mm-hmm. Adults do the read thing. Or watch the movie, I suppose. <laughs> the movie is better. I think, like, I think on all fronts, the movie's better. Yeah. <laughs> um, tightening up that, even if it's more interesting to read as an adult, tightening up that framing device is the best possible idea you could have for a movie like this. 
And on top of that, the movie has a tone that is much less self-serious than the book, and that um, the tone is so much of what makes the movie good. It's funny. <laughs> like it's yeah, the the movie is very funny, and the acting is very camp, and all of the actors know that. Um, well, and it fits perfectly with the framing. It does. Like, yeah, <laughs> just yeah. reading a story to a child. Yeah, it's about reading a story. Yes, it's about it's about the. <laughs> ironically with the Harry Potter thing. It's about the value and importance that reading and fairy tales and stories have and the impact they can have on us when we experience them as children. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think it is incumbent upon the writers of these children's stories to not be shitty fucking people and break our hearts as adults. Yeah, I mean, it would be really nice if, like, a certain writer wasn't a fucking fascist, but I want to. We'll bring. We'll t- we'll touch on the on this topic, but I don't want to stay too long. Uh, if you're okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, oh boy, the Hogwarts Legacy video game came out, and. Uh, a lot of cis people are throwing temper tantrums at the fact that trans people are saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't play that video game. The one video game you could choose to avoid. I don't understand. I don't. You know what it is that I don't understand more than anything else? What's, what's the one thing that's nagging at you? Okay. Okay. You want to buy this game. And yes. you want you want to play the game. No yeah. one's actually stopping you from doing that. Nope. You can buy it and play it and just not say shit about that on social media at all. But this, but Lizzie, they want to keep their ally card, so they have to beg other people to be like, exactly. "Is it okay morally that I play this game?" Like, they want to have, and people, there are people who are like, oh, well, the conservatives, yeah, 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 I know, the conservatives are outrage baiting, I'm not talking about them. Um, I'm talking about the people who want to be, still want to be considered themselves allies. And it's like, I'm going to preface a thing real quick, which is to say, I don't think, like, playing the Harry Potter game, not playing the Harry Potter game, it's really not the end-all, be-all of trans rights and trans activism and like fighting fascism. It's really not. Um, and I, I think to a degree, maybe uh, just because it's, because it's easy um, on social media, like perhaps too much attention is being put on that and not the more materially concrete problems happening at the same time, which is not to downplay the value of, trying to lessen the strength of J.K. Rowling's brand, but I think to a degree we're kidding ourselves to think that Harry Potter's going anywhere because it's really not. Um, I do think that most people, especially trans people who are making those comments, know that. They know that the brand is not going anywhere. I think think the real issue (laughs) is that this was an easy layup, a sign of solidarity. It's it was bit- an easy sign of solidarity. And the fact that people that we think we can trust are throwing away that opportunity because they can't put down one fucking video game. 
it's ex- it's extremely frustrating and it's this issue of like you want to have your cake and eat it too it's right. not enough like this is this is the thing you, it's not enough that you can in fact like no one's banning the video game no one's calling for like stores not to carry it no one's no one's trying to get like a bill passed no one's trying to keep it out of libraries for rent or anything like that it's just we please don't give money to the fascists. Easy. Like it just like like as a show of solidarity for the community. Please don't buy the game, and they can still. If you really want to, if it's that fucking important to you to own this game, you can. But that's not enough. You want to have your cake and eat it too, and you want to come online and you want trans people to make you feel better about it and to tell you it's okay. We're not going to make you feel better about it. And that's, that, that, that's the issue. Like if you like, like that's it, that's it. I hate, I also hate the concept of those massive streamers going like, Hey, I'm going to play it. And live stream it to raise money for charity. Like that offsets the advertising you're putting into it. Like. Well, exactly. Like that's such a fucking cop out to me. Like conceptually, maybe sure. Like if it's, if it's something that if, okay. Let's say that this video game came out before JK Rowling like published the fucking Turf Wars essay or something, right? Right, that would be a different scenario. The game already, and you're streaming it for that and to raise money for trans charities, that would be something. Yeah. That I could I could see and I could totally get behind because that would be funny. And, like, and like, I don't believe in throwing things away as part of a boycott. That's not doing anything. Short like of, physically throwing, throwing things away, you mean? Sorry? You mean like physically throwing items that you're going away? Yeah. Okay. Like, I don't believe in that. Like, if, if, if it's one, if it's one thing if you're like, well, I'm not gonna use wear or touch or I don't wanna look at anymore, sure. But I don't consider it like an ethical imperative that you get rid of your Harry Potter things that you already own. Like, I, all seven, all seven of my Harry Potter books that I own are like 15 to 20 years old. My books. Oh, I've got like trinkets of merch and I've got the Blu-ray of the series. Yeah. I got years ago, but like, but it's like, and like, I have a skirt that sometimes I still wear out because it doesn't really. It's it's technically like a Hufflepuff Hogwarts skirt that I bought at Hot Topic in like 2017, but like that's not a huge thing. Like it's a tiny little badger at the bottom of the skirt. It doesn't really mean anything. Oh, yeah. And I wear that because it's still like like it's a cute. Otherwise, it's just a cute normal like yellow plaid skirt. Right. It's like, like, I don't feel the need to, like, do all of that. So, like, if, like, if you already owned this video, a video game like this, and then J.K. Rowling came out, it's like, yeah, you're not really doing anything one way or the other if you do or don't play the game. But, like, at this point, it's a new game, it's a brand new thing that you don't need to buy, and this, this cop-out thing of, like, oh, well, I'm gonna buy it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy it and then stream it. It's like, no, you're just advertising the game. Yeah. That's all you're doing. Because as far as I'm aware, the game is 
good. Like, I'm, I, my understanding, I don't know a lot about video games. Like, the game so, mechanics good. Can I, I mean, tell you something really funny? Um, a lot of the reviews are saying it's actually fairly terrible. Ah, um, <laughs> that is funny. But a lot of the reviews are actually saying it's very terrible. But for some reason, I guess maybe whatever deals they're having with with Warner Brothers, they don't want to give it a low score. Like IGN is the perfect example where they the reviewer talks about how the story's a mess, it's buggy as hell, it's really not that interesting, and but then they say, but it's Harry Potter and give it a nine out of ten. So like these, they they don't want to ruffle the feathers over at Warner Brothers, you know, because they could probably take back privileges for other games for getting free codes for those. So a lot of the reviews are talking that it's actually not a good game, but they have to convince themselves. It's just so, it's so, okay. (laughs) Which is very funny. That's very embarrassing. Um, For the outlets, honestly, more than anything else, that's embarrassing to do. Uh, you're hiding with your tail between your legs, but that's IGN specifically. So if you want to read IGN's shit show review, that's what it is. I find it. Anyway, no, my point is just that yes, the people who are like, "Oh, I'm gonna stream it for a trans charity," that's a cop out and bullshit. Yeah, they want to play the game, and they <laughs> want to not feel bad for it. Yeah, that's why Hassan was crying about it. Like, just buy, just, like, if you want to play the fucking game, just buy and play the game. And if you don't want to get in trouble for it, don't talk about it. Don't stream it. Don't, don't talk about it on Twitter, on TikTok. Like, just own the game. Play it privately for yourself in your home. No one's, none of, none of the, the scary trans people are sneaking in and spying on you. I'm not going to come down your door with a batting ram. They're not living in your walls, <laughs> waiting to Kool-Aid man out. I think the worst thing with this is the framing. So, like, do you know girlfriend reviews? Have you heard of them? Yes. Okay, so they they had a... heard of them in the context of this. They streamed the game, right? And people are sad. So, the way they're framing it is that she was... They were getting so much abusive hate from trans people that she had cried, you know, made her cry. Um... When you actually look into what happened, majority of the chat that they were getting were in support. A tiny bit were saying how disappointed they were and that they're unsubscribing or mentioning the anti-Semitism that's in the game. Um, she cried and left the room um, while her boyfriend kept playing. And then she came back not long after and continued streaming for another six hours. So the framing is that the angry, evil trans people bullied this poor girl into not, not wanting to play the game when the reality of the situation is that cis people are doing the thing where they take any bit of pushback from trans people and labeling themselves the victims. It's so, it's so, it's such a fucking victim complex. Yes. And I find this is the way a lot of really defensive Harry Potter fans are about this in general. Mm-hmm. Is a lot of people just simply not getting that it's not about. So it's like, I don't believe. Okay. 
I don't, in general, tend to believe in boycotts because boycotts don't work. Um, and I find them to be like it's 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 a it's a thing that you do to make yourself feel better ninety percent of the time. It's not really a material action. But like the, so, the, and I believe that also with Harry Potter. I don't think we're ever going to effectively like undermine the brand of Harry Potter. It's too it's too big. It's too it's too ingrained into pop culture and society and the wheel of capitalism and pop cultural consumption. Consumption like it's not going anywhere. But like not continuing to give money to J.K. Rowling or engage with the property is a matter of like. It's a, it's, a, it's a personal moral statement about your support or lack thereof for her as a person and the politics that she is um, materially supporting. Because it's a thinkable myth. It's not just a matter that J.K. Rowling's tweeting from inside her castle in Scotland. She's also, like, effect, like, like speaking out. She's doing whatever bigoted the bigoted word for activism is, I guess. <laughs> Like, she's actively supporting, materially supporting organizations that are working against trans rights. She's speaking on and has effect on bills in the UK. Her shitty say got quoted on the floor of uh, a US government something. I don't remember what it was. But like, like, there's material things going on there. And choosing to not continue to give her money and show her support verbally and with your interests and materials and actions, it's like it's a show of solidarity with trans people. And so many super defensive Harry Potter fans, like, can't deal with that. So they have to, like, they because they don't want to stop loving Harry Potter. They don't want to stop engaging with it the way that they always have. Mm-hmm. And so they have to, like, spur up this boogeyman where the tr- evil trans people, like, and they're like, no, I'm a, I'm a good ally and I don't agree with what she's saying, but it's not right for you to be trying to, like, ban her books. <laughs> trans people are not trying to get Harry Potter banned. Like, that's the thing that gets me the most. No one's trying to ban any of it, which is so funny because the same people that JKR is, like, dick writing right now are the people that tried to ban her books 20 years ago. Oh, 100%. It's so fucking, is the funniest fucking part of this. <laughs> and what she's doing is alienating the queer fans that she used to have. Yeah. Well, and I've said this on Twitter. I think that J.K. Rowling fundamentally does not understand what it was about her books, um, about Harry Potter as a, as a franchise and a property, as an entity that actually connected with people. I don't think she understands it at all. No. I, I think she profoundly misunderstands the the depth and interest and and uh, point of connection in her books with people and has done nothing but stray further and further every new thing she she personally is involved in or is greenlit for this property strays further and further and further away from the things that people loved about it and like it's sad yeah oh pointing <laughs> This is incredibly disappointing. Like, oh, boo-hoo, you're being told not to play a game. I was told that my existence shouldn't be allowed. So, you know, who's who's Morin at actually 
harm. <sighs> it's just the supreme victim complex on the part of cis people that's entitlement. Embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing as hell. <laughs> And it's it's really frustrating. And I think I think there's a tendency for some some people who never had a lot of investment in Harry Potter as a property um, can be a little bit overly dismissive of what it meant to people. Like lots of it was never good, and you should never have cared about. Why did you even ever care about it in the first place? And it's not worth all of this energy, which I always find in any context, I always find stupid and a waste of time because the only thing you're doing. Yeah, is I hate that. It's it's about, a way of putting yourself above other people. It's like you're just gonna make people defensive about why they cared about the thing. It's like I don't want it because I don't want to continue to materially support Harry Potter. But if you're going to stand there and be like, oh, well, I'm better than you because I never liked it in the first place. Well, what you're making me want to do is explain to you what was important to me about it. And I don't want to do that because I don't want to. For one thing, it doesn't really matter whether or not it was important to me or not. Or whether it wasn't important to you. And it also like I, I want to move on and not think about it. Because I made a similar point to, like, if sorry, I go ahead. And defend to you why it mattered to me when I was 11. <laughs> and, and it's just going to make me sad. Right. <laughs> that was kind of my point recently with uh, Rick and Morty. I said, I said, like, now is not the time to explain how you always thought the show was terrible. Yeah, no. exactly. Or like when Marilyn, when the stuff came out about Marilyn Manson and everybody was like that. Like now is not the time to talk about how you never liked Marilyn Manson's music. Yeah, your not liking of the music doesn't make you a morally superior person. It's irrelevant, and it and it bothers me because whether or not like it 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 reinforces a notion that like skill or talent or quality of your art has anything to do with how good of a person you are. Yeah. That's just not the case. Like, Picasso was a fucking rapist. That doesn't make his, like, his art not masterpieces. H.P. Lovecraft was a fucking racist monster. But it doesn't make his, his horror some of the most influential horror of all time. Like, look at fucking Hitchcock. Hitchcock <laughs> made Psycho and Strangers on a Train and North by Northwest. And, <sighs> and your window. You know what else Hitchcock was? A weird fucking pervert who abused the fuck out of his actresses. Like, we get, like you standing here and being like, oh, actually... Actually, I think Rear Window is a terrible movie. No, you don't. You're just lying. Oh, or, you, or you've never seen the movie. You've ne- like that's just not true. And so, like, and that's unproductive. Because when you reinforce this, the only thing it does is it's like when you have these great artists in positions of great power, people don't want to believe. Like, it's just it's just frustrating. It's fr- it's that that that's an angle to me that gets really really annoying really quickly. But it's also not, like... It's not helpful. It's not helpful, yeah. Not at all. Um, There was one point I wanted to make before we move to something else, because I don't want to end on talking about fucking wizards. Uh, No, of course. 
Um, the thing that I'm seeing too is with this defense of trying to play the game is that like, oh, well, you're using Twitter and that's owned by Elon Musk and he's an even worse transphobe. So really, what are you doing by telling other people not to play the game? Fuck off. It's They're using the no ethical consumption under capitalism, but that doesn't mean that you get a free pass to be as ethically, like, ethically bankrupt as possible. Like, there's a huge difference between Twitter, which, yes, it is owned by a transphobe, but it wasn't just a few months ago. And it's a place where queer people meet and socialize and organize movements. It's a place where people sell products, they sell their livelihoods, and they have their own businesses attached to it. It's not one fucking video game that you can avoid. If you're a streamer, you don't absolutely have to play the Harry Potter game. There are a million other games that you could be playing. I'll give you an example. Play Celeste, actually made by a trans woman. Oh, yeah, if you want to do a charity stream for trans people... Yeah, but there's no ethical consumption of capitalism, which means I should be allowed to play the game whenever I want. Huh, huh. I'll use, a perfect, I'll use a perfect analogy for this with Twitter. You know what is fucking pathetic and embarrassing? People with Twitter blue. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're using Twitter because this is a place where queer people and a lot of other at- social activists can, like, organize and connect with each other. It's a really important tool. It's become a really important um, public information access tool that Elon Musk is desperately trying to break. But, like, yes. it is. And it's, in a lot of modern society, it is, like, a necessity, right? It's frequently the first place people come to where, for, like, information about disaster relief, um, information about, like, really, like, current, important global news topics. It's frequently it's the first place people hear about it. It should never by any means be the last place you're, you're, you're absorbing information about issues, but it's frequently the first place you, you hear something. Yeah. Right? And Twitter is, in its most productive and important form, um, a form of news, a, 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 a newsstand where you're getting the headlines. Yeah. You can go further to find information. So, like, that's valuable. But what you don't fucking need to do is give Elon Musk $8 a month for nothing. Right. That's a major difference, right? That's that's the difference. So, like, I, people do this all the time. People do this all the fucking time with no ethical consumption under capitalism where they think that means I can do whatever I want, and that's not what that means. It means... Anything and everything you attempt to use and utilize under capitalism is tainted in some capacity by exploitation or racism or misogyny or homophobia. Or child labor or whatever. Yeah. And you are never going to live a perfect, pristine, untouched uh, life with no footprint in the exploitation system that is capitalism. It's about necessities, not luxury items, right? Yeah. It's about, like, going to Target versus Walmart for your clothing. Right. Like, those things, like, like if that's what you can afford to buy, it doesn't matter where you go. <laughs> like, it's really easy to avoid paying 65 or $70 for a video game. Like, immensely easy. Well, but you're using a phone made by, you know, 
ch- child labor. So you're just you're 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 just being as bad. You're being a hypocrite. No, you just don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I don't have an option to not own a phone. And they'll come at you and they'll be like, "Oh yes, you do." No, I fucking don't. I want desperately, I dearly, desperately wish for someone for these people to like actually, you actually go ahead and live a productive and interesting life without a phone and a computer. It's because they don't give a shit. You do that. It's not you about that, that, that to them. Job, you can't have a job. You can't go to school. You cannot do anything to function as a, as an, as an autonomous human being. In, in a capitalist society. Without under, without a phone. Yeah. Or a computer. You can't because we have created, oh, well, 50 years ago we did, yes. And in 50 years, we have restructured society entirely to be completely dependent on these tools. Mm-hmm. So that's what no ethical consumption means. I cannot avoid. There is no phone I can buy that was made ethically. So it doesn't matter if I buy an iPhone or an Android. Neither of those were more ethically created. And I don't have the option of just not buying a phone. Because I need one to have a job and go to school. Yeah. <sighs> Any, anyway, happier topics. You saw Megan. I did see Megan. <laughs> I did see Megan. It was fun. It was, uh, it was campy. It was funny. Uh, it was, there was a lot of dancing, um, a little bit of killing, and a little bit of singing. It's a good time. It's, it's a, a good time. That's my review. It's a fun movie. It's really fun. It's really campy. I like, <laughs> the tone is very, very good. It's been a minute since, I feel like a lot of horror comedies. Um, don't actually, like, feel like they need to wink, like, act, don't, like, I, I don't know, this movie is just a, it's, it's a horror comedy, mm-hmm. and not, like, a parody, or a satire, really, so I, I see, I see what you're saying, yeah, I appreciate that it doesn't feel the need to wink at the audience constantly, it just lets the material be funny, right, I always, I always feel like with horror comedies, it's hard to find the balance for a lot. Um, either they're a comedy with like a horror aesthetic or like a horror film with little bits of comedy throughout. And I don't feel like it always gets it like right. And I feel like this was a nice middle ground. It's funny. I've had people in my mentions for like a week and a half now desperately trying to prove to me that Ready or Not is a horror comedy. And I'm not having it. No, it's not. I don't care that it says that on IMDb. IMDb is wrong. <laughs> Ready or not, it's not a comedy. It has, like, a, it's got some jokey jokes. Not even actual jokes. It's got a few funny lines. Ready or not, it's not Do you don't think it's satirical, though, as well? I mean, kind of, in the sense that it's mocking rich people. Like the, the, it's, it's taking the, the, the concept of like, well, wealthy people, like, 
Wealthy people under capitalism are wealthy because they have metaphorically signed a deal with the devil in the sense and and they and exploit people. Yeah. Um and the movie literalizes this family, this old money family as being like they have money with a literal deal they signed with the devil that requires them to quite literally murder humans and like feed and like sac- literally sacrifice them to the devil. That's that's what Ready or Not is doing. So if you want to call that a satire of like the wealthy, I think that's valid, but I think I don't think that something this is <laughs> Just because something is a satire also doesn't make it a comedy. Which I think is one of the other issues with satire sometimes is that people don't, people, uh, people think that satire and parody are like the same, mean the same thing and they don't. And a satire is not always meant to be funny. This was one of the big issues with the Starship Troopers movie. Mm-hmm. Is that Starship Troopers was a satire that wasn't trying to be like a comedy. And that's why, for a very long time, a lot of people who saw that movie didn't understand that it was a satire and were kind of horrified by it. But isn't the satire in that movie also kind of funny, too, in a dark way? Yeah. Yeah. But I would never call Starship Troopers a comedy. (laughs) I don't think it's too far off to put a comedy label attached to Ready or Not. But I see what you're going with. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to... <laughs> we're getting into, like, definitions and, like, specific genre descriptors of certain, like, art. And sometimes art is a bit more messier than that. I get this way about Scream, too. I hate it when people call, call Scream a comedy. I mean, there's a lot of comedy in it. There's a yeah. lot of comedy in it, but that is not what makes that to, to me. That's not what makes a horror comedy. <laughs> I feel like to be because the thing for me is that a horror movies just on the face of their existence are funny. That's built into their to what they are. Yeah, the I mean, I mean, I mean, kind of. It's ridiculous. The hor- hor- horror is ridiculous. It is by design, it is exaggerated, and it is over the top, and it um, results in things that are contorted and unnatural, and a natural human response to things like that is to laugh. So, like, I go back a lot to, like, my examples that I like to go to a lot are the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then TCM2. The first Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not a horror comedy, but it's really funny like there are a lot, there's lots of bits in that movie that are just so ridiculous and gross and uncomfortable to look at that it's funny. Like Leatherface just staring at him is funny, but it's not a comedy. TCM two is absolutely a comedy. It's actively trying to make you laugh constantly. It's full of jokes. It's in many capacities a parody of itself. Your tone matters, your intent matters, the whether or not like it's like that's that's the thing for me. <laughs> I, I see I see what you're getting at. 
<laughs> I think I'm just a little bit more looser when it comes to things like that. For me to call something a horror comedy, I think that being funny needs to actually be like part of the movie's goal and not just like a byproduct of this is how you write good horror. <laughs> right. Is by having funny things in it. That is fair. But Megan was very funny. Megan was very funny. I think Megan was trying to be very funny. I think the opening on that that toy commercial was hilarious. It was a great way to start that movie. No spoilers, but... The fucking... Okay, so there's a toy... No no spoilers, but there's a toy in this movie that is very clearly supposed to be a parody of Furbies, specifically. And every bit of that, that Furby parody is hilarious. It's so fucking funny. And I'm going to tell you, as a kid, I was a generation of Furby. Me, so my... So you could feel that. <laughs> so I felt all of it. The way that this, these things are fucking terrifying and horrifying to look at. How fucking ugly they are. How badly you fucking want one anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say, if anybody who really liked Megan... Um, I recommend sincerely the um, 2019 Child's Play remake, which is a very good movie that was unfortunate in the fact that this it was uh, stuck with this Child's Play remake coat of paint on it. Yeah. That it didn't need and did nothing but cause unnecessary drama with Don Mancini. <laughs> I also think Megan's funnier. <laughs> I do. I like I like the Child's Play remake a lot. I just wish it hadn't been the Child's Play remake. I do like that it's R-rated, unlike Megan, but I also appreciate what Megan did. So, but that's just me. I always want a film to be a, bit, a little bit more horror film, to be a little bit more bloodier at times. Same. Same. But I like... I just like... Megan was anyways, the point is Megan's very funny, it's very good. I recommend it to people wholeheartedly. Like it's difficult to talk about because there's not like a lot of depth to it or anything. No, it's not a it's not a it's not a thought provoking movie, it's just a fun good time. It's just a good movie. Yeah. Um, one of the things I do like about it is that it's less of a tri- like it's less of a child like I know I just compared it to the Child's Play remake, but the thing about the Child's Play remake is that it was nothing like the Child's Play movies, so <laughs> um Megan's quickly become a horror icon in her own right too. It's but it's it's less um aping stuff like Chucky and more of like the kind of cloying family um children's movies. Ah. About yeah. like <laughs> Losing a fam, like like a kid that loses their parent or their sibling or something in some like like my girl is what it reminded me of or Bridge to Terabithia. This kind of like oh well, child like like movies for children about processing grief and death for the first time. Mm-hmm. It felt much more like it was aping on the the tropes of that <laughs> than it was like. It definitely didn't feel like it was Chucky. No, not at all. Outside of the sh- the shared similarity of a toy. Yeah, like but people like, are focusing in on the killer toy doll a- angle, and it's like, but that's not really the kind of movie that it is. 
<laughs> but it's not the same movie. It's very different. And I liked, I liked that. I thought it was funny. And I thought it was funnier. Particularly the funniest scene in the movie arises from like that very stereotypical cliched scene of like trying to comfort the grieving child. <laughs> But like talk about how much they miss their parents. Like, tell me a great memory about your dead mom, and I won't spoil the punchline to that scene. But it's the funniest scene in the whole movie. There are some good moments. Yeah. So you should see Megan. It's fun. I won't spoil anything. Um. Yeah, <laughs> Megan's a movie you can't talk a lot about. You know, there's yeah. not much to like. Of most comedies. Yeah. Um, is it's hard to talk about what's great about them without, like, ruining... Spoiling jokes. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to ruin it, but I recommend you seeing it. It's fun. Uh, kind of like... I also still recommend Malignant, if you want another incredibly crazy film. From some of the same people who did that, so... If you haven't seen Malignant, see that one, too. That one's a blast. Um, I heard that you got a little bit of a, of a something. I got a something? I got a tattoo. A tattoo? A tat, I know I'm of the devil or something. Um, <laughs> I can't. You are, you are inking your body and you are going to the fires of the underworld. It's not so bad. Yeah, yeah. So tell the people what your tattoo is. It's just it's just strawberry vine, and it's got leaves and little strawberries and the strawberry blossoms, like the little flowers, which is all very pretty. It's black and gray, which is what all of my tattoos are going to be because I, I, I like that. Um, my favorite little detail on it is that one of the strawberry blossoms has a baby strawberry already partially growing out of it, and it's very pretty. And I love it, and it makes me very happy. You can see that on on uh, your Twitter account. You posted that <laughs> on Twitter on on Twitter dot com backslash Lizzie Lemon Drops. Is that how it works? I think so. You can also just add let me Lizzie Lemon Drops. <laughs> you can also just look in the search bar. Yes. You know, people do that like sincerely, like that's how they're linking you to something when they're trying to describe something. You're like, you go to www.website.com <laughs> backslash, and it's like, bro. HTTP <laughs> colon. <laughs> it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's an older person thing, clearly, because that is, you, you, you did used to have to do that to find things. But it's like, yeah. no, no one researches thing. My dad still says that sometimes. You go to www. No one has to go to www. Anything anymore, Dad. Just Google it. You just go to Google and you type in some keywords. You. T- <laughs> and you know there is something funny about your tattoo because it's connected to something that we both watched recently. It is. This is not why I want to preface with the fact that I had this tattoo appointment booked before it came out. Okay, but it feels fucking perfect. It does. I remember seeing that, and here's the thing. The thing you're alluding to made me fucking cry, and I was like, it's meant to be! (laughs) 
So yes, when we when I brought it up together, I had mentioned the Last of Us show, but you you hadn't watched it yet. So now you are up to episode three, correct? I am up to episode three, the greatest episode of television (laughs) ever. So we're gonna maybe do a little bit of mild spoiler in this little conversation we're gonna have on it. Uh, please watch episode three of Last of Us and the rest of the show if you haven't. It's up to five and every episode I think has been fucking solid. But, um, The Last of Us is, is a little setup as it's a sort of post-apocalyptic, uh, zombie story, but like the zombies are not your typical zombies. They're pretty much just like people They're infected with cordyceps. Huh? They're mushroom zombies. Mushroom zombies. They're shroom zombies, yes. This is what uh, I always call them. I've always called them. I know they have an actual name, and I don't care. I've always just called them the mushroom zombies. You mean the cordyceps? Yeah. <laughs> the fung- the fungi zombies. Um, Infected. Yes. Uh, and there's a lot of... It's based on the video game series, obviously, and it's a lot of heartbreak and, and trauma. But one thing that I think... Episode 3 did. Now, to give a little setup, there's these two characters. One whose name is Bill. Bill is your typical, um, or at least seemingly typical, um, anti-authoritarian sort of Second Second Amendment loving doomsday prepper type guy. Uh, And when the shit goes down, with the uh the world basically coming to a, to an end he had has it made he has a plan he has a bunker he's pretty much got got everything that he needs or thinks that he needs right until he stumbles across a man named Frank and what this episode did was give you an entire gay love story within an hour and 20 minutes and probably one of the most amazingly romantic gay love stories I've ever seen on television. It, <laughs> I think this is, this is the, okay, I said that before, this is the best episode of television ever. It is, it, but it, seriously, it's the, absolutely the greatest um, depiction of like queer love I've seen since, at the very least since Blind Manor. Yeah, and I and I think that something that really hit me watching is that you don't get a lot of media, queer media, where you get to see a couple fall in love, a queer couple fall in love and grow all together. I older you don't here. <laughs> yes, I can't. I'm gonna cry just just quoting it because that's such a perfect fucking. And I think what's really interesting with The Last of Us is that the entire thematic material behind it is it's love. The whole show is about love. Um, the whole game was about love, and the show is doing, making sure to hammer that in point. It's about love, but love in all of its different forms. Love is a very toxic sort of entity, or love, as we get in this episode, as the most beautiful thing ever. Um, there's, there's a line that I, I love and it's never going to leave my head is 
Frank says, um, paying attention to things is how you show love. Um, <laughs> don't make me cry. Because <laughs> uh, we can't stress this enough that what this story shows is Bill and Frank in the post-apocalypse living for 20 years together in love, gardening and painting and cooking and playing music and raising livestock and decorating strawberries and growing strawberry. There's a particular scene where um, Frank surprises Bill that he had um, traded one of their guns um, with uh with um Joel Joel I'm sorry yeah <laughs> I'm 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 then with Joel for strawberry seeds and he grew strawberries and when I tell you that I said verbally out loud alone in my living room they grew strawberries in the apocalypse <laughs> <laughs> and I texted it to my girlfriend and I put it on Twitter and I was sobbing I was crying <laughs> I was like, the world is ending, and these two old gay men grew strawberries together. <laughs> and went out on their own terms. And it's, 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 and I think it's been pretty thoroughly, like, I don't think this is an overwhelming consensus, that there, um, and this was an overwhelming thing, it's been pretty thoroughly argued against, but there are still a handful of, I think, younger queer people who don't understand the, the gravity of a an elderly of gay couple existing? Um, yeah, just like at all, <laughs> but like just don't understand like the gravity of the story being told completely. Um, trying to call this barrier gaze. So let's set a thing very straight here. Um, just on the face of it, a story where a gay couple spends twenty years living for the most part as happy and peaceful a life as can be imagined in the circumstances of the end of the world, um, together and happy and in love. Um, like I said, gardening and playing music and painting and making and cooking for each other. That is not again, for gays. Pay, again, paying attention to things is how you show love. It's the running theme throughout the entire episode. Um, is these, these two people being like that? That like twenty years of being that's not barrier gaze. It's not barrier gaze. And I would like to specify: people miss this. Barrier gaze does not just mean your gay character died. Barrier gaze refers specifically to a trend that popped up at the height of the Hayes Code, where um, films weren't allowed to depict any sort of queer coded character without the narrative explicitly punishing them for their deviance. And usually, the majority of the time, that punishment was some sort of tragic death. Whether they were murdered, usually they killed themselves. Like, it was usually suicide. Um, because if you were writing a queer character into your movie in Dirt at the Height of the Haze Code, it's because you already went in knowing you were writing a tragedy to begin with. Um. I, 
I also want to bring up the point that so far, this was, at least to that point, is the biggest divergence that the show takes from the game. I'm not sure how familiar you are with any of the game or the story that happened. Many a gameplay. Many a play. Did you? Oh, okay. So you do know the story of Bill and Franken. Yes. I know that in the game, they had broken up in some capacity. Um, and that when we meet Bill in the narrative with Joel and Ellie, um, Frank had been bitten and killed himself after already leaving Bill. Um, and we find Frank's body. And that is very upsetting. And actually feels much closer to barrier gaze um, in that the only context in which we're allowed to make Bill an explicitly gay character is because his husband just committed suicide. Yeah. And so I, I adore the game. I think it's a masterpiece in its own right. But it is a product of its time. 2013, right? I believe that there was an attempt. And I'm not trying to justify it by, by that. And I'm but not I, saying that it's terrible that that's the direction the game went in. I'm just saying that that is a far more closer approximation to the trope as it, it exists than... <laughs> and I, I think it was smart when adapting this to not only do their story, but do it well. It's way better in the show than in the game. Uh, um, spoilers, I guess, uh, one more time. But like At the end of the episode, Frank has been very, very sick with what is presumably cancer of some I, kind. I will I will say that listening to the podcast, they said, because HBO does a podcast with Craig, Neil Druckmann, and uh, Troy Baker, who played Joel in the game, um, and they said that that actually was probably ALS. Okay. That makes, no, that, that makes a lot of sense, it does. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's been very sick and very weak for a very long time. Um, and Frank decides that he just wants to have one last perfect day with Bill and then he wants to die. Um, so they have a perfect day. <laughs> they play music and they get dressed up in nice suits that Frank picked out and they finally have a wedding. Also, really good to know that the apocalypse happens in 2003 before gay marriage was even a thing. Gay marriage is legalized across anywhere in the country, and that is a great decision thematically for this because it hits so much more. Mm -hmm. That these would have been, like, men, gay men who came of age at the height of the AIDS crisis. Yeah. Um, which just, it just makes it, it just, it, it, it works so much better thematically in, in a context like that. Yeah, no, it was a really smart decision they, they did for that, that part of the show. Um, and so when they have, they have a, a wedding, um, and Bill makes him the same meal that he made for him the first day they met. And Bill says, um, because, because at that point Frank wants Bill, essentially, and we see it, crush up his pills and put it in the wine they're going to have so that he can peacefully go to sleep. But Bill lived a good life. And as he tells Frank, you know, he's, he's done the same thing. And he says that, that this isn't the tragic 
suicide at the end of a play, and that he's lived a full life. Um, and that makes that scene hit harder. <laughs> Dude, I'm crying. <laughs> I really love the thematic elements throughout the show, by the way. That whole episode, those moments and those thoughtful sort of lines in those those sequences and how they perfectly sort of mirror like an uh, inverse mirror of Joel and Ellie right yeah (laughs) and I like that I like it I like a story that is able to thematically mirror um romantic and familial love without making it weird Mm mm-hmm uh, you could that could that can go the wrong direction when you're trying to draw parallels between the relationship between a romantic couple and like a par- parental child's relationship, but it works. Well, especially because in the the note that that Bill leaves for Joel, he mentions Tess, who in the previous episode had passed away. It's a really good indication of showing Joel's failures. Uh, Because Joel is not a perfect person. No, and I get the sense that the show is going to make Joel something, and they already kind of have, but it's it's making Joel um, a little bit better of a person than he was in the game. I think you're right. But I do want you to get it further because um, it it balances that line. Uh. You'll see ruthless Joel is what I'm saying. But also soft Joel. Also soft Joel. Yes. Um, I also love the the note where she, she reads it. Was it God help any motherfucker who stands in our way, right? Yeah. Anyway, it was really good. It was a very, 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 very good episode of television and um, if there's an and again i guess we, we need to watch the rest of the season but i can't imagine there'll be a better episode than this um it's a lot like i imagine this is the episode that's going to get nominated for an emmy i i hope so next year i really hope so um i think i think uh nick offerman should be nominated i love nick offerman like that's not so wistful. I'm sorry, but like I, Nick Offerman is such a. First of all, he's just a very, very funny and very talented actor, and mm-hmm. I think that we're very lucky to have him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also such a good guy. <laughs> it feels like he's like a great example of non-toxic masculinity. It does because Nick Offerman like imbues such so much like traditionally masculine rough with his big beard or mustache depending on what you're watching yeah um and his like his very deep gruff voice and his very masculine and confident demeanor um but he's also very kind and he's gentle and he cares about marginalized people um and he has a tendency to correct his opinions and behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, when it pointed out that there was something wrong in some capacity. Hey, a full circle back to uh, Kevin Smith. Yeah, look at us. Yeah. I like that. 
We totally have the script we're working off of. Ah, we're doing great. (laughs) Okay, one more thing I'd like to talk about real quick, and then we can, we, we will, we will, we will wind down. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, uh, sorry, speaking of new TV series, there is a new show, uh, with NBC on the Peacock streaming service from Ryan Johnson. It is called Poker Face. Oh, that's right. We were going to talk about Poker Face. Yes. It uh, stars the gayest straight woman alive, Natasha Leon. Um, the love and of and if you can't get enough of, uh, like, if you didn't have your full of uh, Ryan Johnson greatness, this show has it. It's great. It's really good. Okay. So, the Poker Face is a very good show. It's a, it's a, like, it's a, it's ultimately, it's a murder mystery show with a new murder mystery every week. Um, it is very, the easiest way to describe it is its biggest influence is very, very clearly Columbo. I am yeah. not the first person to make that comparison, nor will I be the last, because it's very evident. I mean, the fact that every episode you know who the killer is. Yeah, right, from its structure, uh, from it, it's pulling from Columbo's structure of, like, we start from the point of view of the killer, and then we watch um, Charlie, our, our lead character, um, solve like figure it figure it out because um, she's a human lie detector. Because she's a human lie detector. Her thing, yes. In this, in this one, she is not. And I like the society. Charlie's not a cop, which um, I didn't realize going into the show. Mm-hmm. I think I wasn't paying super close attention to the ads, and I think that I saw like cop cars from a couple episodes, and I saw Charlie solving crimes, and I was like, oh, okay, whatever. She's a police detective. Um, she's not. She's not a cop. She's um. Kind of a vagabond outlaw on the run from the mob, which is so much better. Yeah, it's it's good. Um, but yeah, her whole thing is that she always knows when people are lying. Bullshit. Yeah, she, she just she just takes like it's just it's just an accepted fact of the show that she is always right. She always knows that someone's lying. It's not really billed as some sort of super, like supernatural superpower. The first episode does a great job of setting that up, by the way. Yeah. I mean, like, it's not like a superpower. It's just like kind of, it's just a thing. She just knows. She can tell. She can always tell when someone's lying to her. Um, and that doesn't mean she always knows the truth. Or no, why, that's the fun of it. She doesn't know everything. Yeah. Or why someone's lying. She just knows that you're lying. Um, which is part, which is a big part of, and I like that the way they work that in is that that's quite frequently what leads her to unintentionally realizing that there's been a murder. Is someone lies about something completely arbitrary and pointless, like we're out of cumin? And she's like, mm. Why do you lie about that? <laughs> like, what? You, you that's not true. You made that like you you made that up. Why? And like, that's usually the thing that will send her on the path of like solving that there's there's been a murder. And it so it's really really it's a good show. It's a very fun time. It's funny. Natasha Leone is amazing as she is in most things. 
the way the story comes together, the pieces, you know, lining up each mystery and the, 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 the cast is incredible since it feels like, you know, each episode has been kind of, it's, well, there's an overarching story that's happening, but they all, they're also very much self-contained in a lot of ways, which mm-hmm. gives the show an excuse to hire like some like incredibly talented actors to come in. It's a good time. It's basically a rotating cast, except for Natasha. Mm-hmm. It's great. Um, you still haven't seen Crystal episode five, which is tragic because episode five is the best episode. It's Maybe directed, I'll watch that tonight. You should. It's directed by Lucky McKee, who did May and All Cheerleaders Die and The Woman. Okay. Um, so some of the, my favorite um, female-centric horror movies of the last, like, 20 years. Oh, cool. <laughs> Fantastic, great times. Um, it's, it's, it's the, I don't want to spoil anything about it, but it's the best episode. <laughs> so when you watch it, please... I'll text you. Text me about it, yeah. Um, and just, yeah, it's just really good. If you like, okay, I'm gonna pre- I'm gonna make say something. If you like cop shows, but you get uncomfy with the copaganda element of most cop shows, this show's not a cop. <laughs> oh, it's perfect for you. It's got all of the things that you like about police procedurals without the copaganda. Right. <laughs> I know, at least for me, as a person who really loves stuff like, I love Elementary and Law and Order, and most of the Law and Order spinoffs, especially SVU, it's like, oh, this is a good time. Oh, wait, this is complete bullshit. Cops are not like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's Those are fictional <laughs> for a reason. And, yeah. So this is a good show. This is a good one for you. Um, and also, if you like it and you've never seen its clearest, biggest inspiration, Columbo, um, all ten seasons of Columbo are also on Peacock. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah, I discovered that last week, and it's one of my. I love Columbo, and here's the thing: Columbo is a cop, and it's. But um, <laughs> the show Columbo is great. I have a lot of nostalgia for it. I used to watch it with my dad when I was a kid. It was a very, very popular um, detective series, uh, TV series from the seventies. Um, if you like stuff from the 70s, it's a good time. It's a great show. Um, and also the very first ever televised episode of Columbo was directed by Steven Spielberg. I did not know that. That's cool. A very fun fact. Hmm. Um, so yeah, anyway, if you want some like good, like engaging light television that's not gonna emotionally destroy you, like most of the other TV shows I recommend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, like, like someone asks me, what are some of your favorite TV shows? And I'm coming out here with like, oh, The Haunting of Hill House. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not, yeah, those are real near night shows. <laughs> um, I, I, and then The Last of Us. <laughs> If you want some good TV that's fun to watch and is not going to, like, wreck you psychologically, those are some good pickings. It gives you a good spin blast of serotonin. Indeed, and indeed. 
I think uh I think with that point, I think uh, I think it's about time that we uh we wrap up the show. Yeah. Uh we had a good long episode. A lot of really good things covered. Uh I wasn't expecting us to have so much to say this week. It's it's good. We're talkative bitches. <laughs> <laughs> and we managed to not talk about Taylor Swift. I think <laughs> the Grammys nah, next. next time. <laughs> and with that being said, um, do you want to do you want to maybe plug where they can find you? Yeah, you can follow me at Lizzie Lemon Drop on Twitter or the final final whore on TikTok. And you can follow me at Crystal W Rocks on Twitter and. You can go to my bio there, and I have a link tree, and it links to all the different things that you can follow me on. So go at it. Have fun with that. Uh, if you want to donate, I always am happy with that. I've got Cash App and Venmo and all the, all the good things. Um, but with that being said, thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Gauss Geekdom podcast. We plan to have some guests on in the future so keep an eye out for that and we will see you next time goodbye everybody goodbye